Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Hi everyone and welcome to Location Matters. My name is Sarah Butler and I am your host of this wonderful podcast and today I'm really, really excited to be talking about probably one of my favourite things to talk about, which is drone mapping. So we haven't gotten to talk about this much on the NGIS podcast before because I guess NGIS as a business hasn't really dabbled before in drone mapping and for sure, you know, looked at drone imagery and how that can be applied to projects. But we haven't actually had anyone in the team that has really gotten their hands dirty with it. So I'm really delighted today to be joined by my friends from the Winyama team and the NGIS team, but most importantly, somebody who I consider to be just an absolute leader in this space, Karen Joyce, who is joining us, I think from Queensland, right, Karen? Awesome. So Karen's joining us from Queensland today. Karen Joyce has been on the podcast before, so she's not a stranger to the Location Matters podcast, but Karen, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah, and hi also to Tim and Marty. It's really great to be here. Yeah, well, we do have Tim and Marty, so I'll introduce them now. So they're new to the podcast as well. But they're, you know, the way they work and the things that they do aren't new to the podcast because we've talked about Indigenous Mapping Workshop a lot before. But I have on my left, I have Tim Cable, who is our IT consultant for Winyama. Tim, you want to say hello and introduce yourself to our podcast listeners? Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so hey, everybody. Uh, so, so Sarah said, my name's Tim. Um, so I work as a IT consultant, so many hats for Winyama. Um, I'm going to quickly drop the disclaimer in there that I am not a geospatial person. Well, I wasn't when I first joined. Uh, my background was primarily in IT support. And I actually, I used this joke at the Phosphor G conference that Marty and I spoke at on Friday, that uh, the first thing I knew about GIS was that people would give us phone calls when working on the service desk and say, oh, I need help connecting to the license server. And I was like, oh, that's GIS. Uh, obviously, <laughs> that was a bit of a short-sighted view of it all. And um, yeah, it's been great working at Winyama and learning about geospatial tech and uh, yeah, the software used for drone mapping, which will be pretty relevant for our discussion today. I think from what I've seen so far, Tim, is that since you've been working in the team, you've picked things up pretty quickly on the mapping front. So you need to give yourself a bit more credit, my friend. And then on my right, I have Martin. Well, Marty, can I call you Martin? I don't have to call you Martin Rocks. Because I only call you Marty, really. If you call me Martin, I think I'm in trouble. Oh, you're in trouble. Okay, it's definitely Marty Rocks (laughs) on my right-hand side. Marty works for NGIS, but he has got so much experience working with um, the Indigenous community here Mm. in Australia and um, has been really, you know, crucial um, as a person to come to for the Winyama team from, uh, I guess, the NGIS-Winyama relationship um, and has been doing lots of Indigenous mapping workshop stuff and Winyama work yep. with the team. So, Mar, do you want to say hi to the listeners and introduce yourself? Yeah, hey, everyone. Uh, yeah, like Sarah said, I, I've been doing mapping for a long time. Um, obviously, I'm an Irish guy, so a bit of an accent. I'll try and keep my voice slow and paced so that people can understand. Yeah, my degree in uni was time planning and architecture. And my first job, the manager said, hey, mate, you seem to know your way around a computer. Come with me. And it got me trained up in, in GIS uh, and pretty much been doing it ever since. Um, and I think I had my first experience in the native title space maybe four or five years ago when I worked for a native title corporation. And yeah, I feel like kind of really lucky to be in, in this space, being able to apply what I know uh, in a more beneficial way. 
Awesome. Well, yeah, no, we're really glad to have you here on the podcast. And then I'm going to go back to Karen for a sec because I'm just mindful that people listening to this particular podcast may not have heard Karen's last podcast, but Karen, please, if you wouldn't mind um, just saying hi, introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about you. Yeah, sure. So, hi. I, I think of myself as like a biographer for Mother Earth and I use satellites and drones as my scientific illustrators. So I like to tell stories about the earth and ecosystems and how they change over time. I'm a lecturer at James Cook University here in Cairns, so on Jabagunji land. And I, I also have a couple of separate businesses. So one is called SheMaps. We do engagement with schools around drones and geospatial tech. And the other one is called GeoNadia. And we're basically trying to build the best map of the world using crowdsourced drone imagery. Awesome. Just a couple of casual side projects. <laughs> yeah. You're a busy lady. I can <laughs> I probably it. get at the gym. Well, you've got fanboys now over here in WA who are ready to get, um, you know, their hands dirty and help you out, Karen, I think. So let's, I want to start with a fun question because I think drone mapping is fun and it really excites me. I have a husband who has a drone and every holiday we go on, it comes out. He crashed it a few times. A couple of birds have attacked it. It lives on. (laughs) We're happy. But we've got some really amazing footage from around the world. I'm really interested in knowing from you guys Where's the coolest place that you have captured drone footage before? Just to start this podcast, maybe you, Karen, you want to go first? Yeah, for sure. Look, it has to be the Great Barrier Reef, without a doubt. I I am super, super privileged to live on the Great Barrier Reef, basically. It's my backyard and there's places that I get to go to because I'm a researcher that you know, they're just not available for tourists to go there. And and I feel really lucky to be able to do that and fly my drone there and then share the map so you can travel there vicariously at least. Yeah, I'd love to do that at the moment. (laughs) I'd love to actually go on a virtual holiday somewhere. I've never been to the Great Barrier Reef um, and I've been always dying to go there. So, um, you know, hopefully I can get there soon. Marty, coolest place you've ever captured Mm. drone footage well, when I first got to Australia, I actually lived up in North Queensland for about half a year, up in Cape Trip. So I do love that area, but I never had a chance to map over there. I only got my drone license about maybe two years ago, um, just in time for COVID. So I haven't actually flown anywhere outside of the state. Okay. Um, but anyway, in WA? But in WA, the coolest place is going to have to be up in the Kimberleys. Yeah. And that was part of the IMW and it was just incredible scenery. Um, yeah. Great landscapes. Because you did the yeah, Beagle cool. Bay trip, right? Beagle Bay up in Nordjylland and yeah, the whole peninsula. Yeah, yeah it was phenomenal. I saw some pictures yeah. of that trip and it looked pristine. Yeah. Just beautiful, untouched habitat. Yeah, I kind of wish we'd taken more actual photographs as opposed to images for ortho mosaics. Yeah. Because, yeah. It was just you were in ortho mosaic mode. Yeah, we were. We were, we were <laughs> full on, full on map mode. How about you, Tim? Yeah, so uh, in a similar vein to Marty, uh, back in July, we headed up to the Kimberley, uh, went with a guy, uh, shout out Stafford Smith, and we <laughs> hung out with the Nordura Rangers up there, and they took us up to the Old Crossing, so that's near Fitzroy Crossing, and like Marty, we were doing a bit of mapping, so taking some Orpho Mosaic base maps, um, but the Rangers also had a bit of time flying the drone themselves, and they, t- they took some awesome photos and videos, there's one where Staff 
hurls his uh, cowboy hat, signature cowboy hat, into the air and uh, <laughs> caught it mid-flight. So that was pretty, pretty cool. Because um, my, my job was to handle all the imagery and stuff we captured afterwards. So I get to have a look through that album and, yeah, see that stuff, which is really, really cool. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, cool. Thanks, guys. I think we'll jump into getting into, like, the I guess, talking about drone mapping in a bit more detail there's a really specific reason why I wanted Karen to be here today because when I personally think of drone mapping here in Australia as well, you're just top of mind for me. Um, you've been doing amazing work in this space. You you know, mentioned before She Maps, which is something I've known about for the, the last three years I've been at NGIS and we're really proud to support the work of She Maps as well. We've, um, you know, done all sorts of things with you. We've, we've bought kids' books called Pippa and Droney and we've done... Um, uh, map my school more recently where we've been able to give some drones to a school here in WA which has been really really cool you've just been a champion for kids to to find their way into STEM for women um, to find their way into STEM as well um, I would love to hear about you know how drones and drone mapping has become such a big part of your life yeah, I guess it's actually such a, an interesting pathway, really, and certainly not something that I could have imagined when I was a kid, which is why I like working with school kids now so that they can start to think about, you know, where, where are the pathways for them in the future and stuff that hasn't been invented yet, because I'm somewhere that wasn't invented when I was at school. I started working with drones. Actually, I, I kind of imagined working with something remote control early early in 2000, I guess, when I was doing my PhD and wanting to be able to capture imagery over the reef for myself rather than paying tens of thousands of dollars for an aerial survey company to come out and knowing that satellites weren't giving me the detail that I wanted. And then, you know, that sort of wasn't something that was available back then, but then I, I got introduced to drones when I was, I was in the Australian Army for a few years and drones there were part of artillery corps but I was in survey and engineering and so just looking at how they use them for surveillance in artillery I was like oh you know if you just turned your camera directly down or nadir instead of facing outwards we could do all this mapping it would be amazing and I couldn't convince them to do it and then you know fast forward a few more years and I started working with some colleagues at NASA and they were doing the the drone work for looking at wildfires in California and I was like oh this is this is amazing this is this is where we need to go and I was working in Darwin at the time up at Charles Darwin Uni and again looking at the aerial survey costs I was like nah if we can get our own drones in service um, we can do some really really cool stuff and so it's been it's been a long pathway I guess over you know maybe maybe 15 to 20 years to get to where I am now, just having, you know, a couple lying around my office that I can just go out and use on a daily basis if I wanted to. But uh, it's, it's been really interesting and I think it's only more and more going to get more and more exciting as we go into the future as well. Marty, I could see Marty was digging everything you were just saying. Marty, did you have a question for Karen or something you wanted to say? I don't know. I was just the old casual NASA reference. Oh, yeah, just my colleagues from NASA. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, come doing? on, they're just another government department. It just sounds fancy. <laughs> but that's actually what it is, right? It's, yeah. you know, um, it, when you, you go there and, yeah, sure, there's cool memorabilia around the place, but they're exactly the same as a government department with lots and lots of bureaucracy there as well. It's okay, Marty. Cool. One day you'll go. 
<laughs> and then you'll be able to go to Karen, yeah, you were right. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I feel like Kinda if you went, you'd be all the cool little artifacts and things you'd be nerding out on as well. Oh, um, you said cool. You said before, Karen, how special the Great Barrier Reef is to you. And you actually recently on a sort of more women-led research boat um, in the Great Barrier Reef where you were conducting in-water surveys for sea cucumbers as well as drone surveys for mapping their habitat. Can you tell us a bit about the project? Yeah, for sure. It's actually a, a multidisciplinary project and actually several projects all tied into one for that particular trip. It was really cool. It was a, an, a trip that was organised through an organisation called Citizens of the Great Barrier Reef. And basically what they decided that they wanted to do was have a boat with female-led research on the reef. And so we had with teams of people doing a variety of different things. There were people looking at seagrass. There were some people doing some general reef surveys. And with my team, we were involved in a project that's that's a multi-year project we have going looking at sea cucumbers across the Great Barrier Reef. So we were flying drones to look at habitat mapping. And also we can see sea cucumbers in the shallow waters of the reef using drones. So we do that to look at counting sea cucumbers across broad scales. And then we do in-water surveys as well to, again, count them, look at the different species. And the reason that we look at sea cucumbers is because they're actually really quite a valuable fishery and a lot of our sea cucumbers get exported and we don't really know too much about them. So it's really important to be able to understand where the different species are, how how dense they are and you know are we taking too many or maybe we could take more what what's the status of that fishery so it's pretty cool to be able to use drones to do that use some underwater drones use snorkeling and all sorts of stuff as well yeah awesome no i was going to ask about did you use underwater drones as well um yeah you... not, not as part of the trip that we were on three weeks ago but mm. as part of the project in general yeah we do yeah can yeah. i can i just jump in there what the i didn't even know that underwater drones existed Tell someone, please tell me. Like, what? Tell me about this, please. It's like that episode of James Bond. I don't watch James Bond. Sorry, yeah, no, don't do. My husband does it. He goes, (laughs) "You, what do you mean? You've never watched James Bond?" Karen, can you tell me about an underwater drone, please? I'm genuinely interested in this. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, it's just like the ones in the air, except it's in the water. They often get called ROVs or remotely operated vehicles because we like to have different acronyms for the same sorts of things in different fields. Or even instead of UAVs, they go AUVs for autonomous underwater vehicles, Mm -hmm. Um, just to add some acronyms into that space there. But yeah, similar similar sorts of deals. Um, I mean, you may even have seen them on some of David Attenborough's work, like he goes down in this big yellow bubble thing. We're we're not that fancy. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, cameras underwater. Yeah, and here, Karen, are you able to use them for mapping as well? Or is it more imagery and video? I mean, I know yeah. Esri has their full motion video plugin. Oh. Yeah, so mostly we, we use them for, for the videos. Yeah. So, yes, you can map to a degree. The challenge is knowing exactly where you are because GPS doesn't mm-hmm. work underwater. So it's it's not as, yeah, definitely not as good as mapping stuff on the surface. But mm-hmm. we use them for deeper water um, stuff like looking at 40 meters or so as well where we don't want to be snorkeling or diving too much yeah, cool. yeah tim we've got to look at this for imw underwater drones definitely Imagine. yeah well, there's a fair bit of interest in like freshwater surveys mm. um, with some of the ranger groups we've been working with and um, at the moment i believe they are taking imagery of their fish traps and the like yep um but yeah 
definitely a bit of potential in that space. Yeah, yeah totally. especially where there's crocs around, right? And we can actually use Karen's um, template for a business case. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Oh dear. Well, Karen, I'm going to ask Karen all about that later. So can you just control yourself, please, Marty? Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> so I want to talk to you guys, Tim and Marty, um, regarding the recent trip. You, you mentioned at the beginning, you went up to the Kimberley. Um, now that was a quite a big trip for the Winyama team. So there was the Fitzroy crossing trip. And then there was like a second part of that, which went up to Arjaloon and Beagle Bay um, and, and, you know, up that peninsula there. And then the third part of that was around Kununurra, kind of travelling down um, with the Kidja Ranges and then going back up. And then we finished up. And it sounds very short, but it was actually about a good month and a half trip. Um, and Tim mentioned Staff before, Stafford Smith, who's been on the podcast before. He kind of helped run that whole piece. Um, and an amazing trip. Um, and you guys got to do some really wicked stuff. But I want to talk about drone use in ranger groups because something that we just see a lot of is that and we hear a lot of through indigenous mapping workshop is that a lot of ranger groups already have drones Mm. or they're looking at getting drones um and maybe there's i guess a bit of a disconnect in like we have these drones we don't really know how to get the best out of them but the point is is that a lot of the ranger groups are looking at this equipment and going yes we need to make this work for us how have you guys during that trip have, you know, why do you think it is that rangers are looking at drones as the best option for them to survey the land and gather, gather data, Tim? So I think Karen's already touched on a few points as to why uh, the storytelling um, is, is a huge piece of it. Um, but also I think she mentioned the alternative, which is your satellite imagery, uh, from normally doesn't have the quality you need, especially if you were going as fine grain as to count sea cucumbers. <laughs> you probably won't be able to count them on, a, on, on um, other satellite imagery. And also the currency, like the recent the recency of the images too. Uh, if you're going out for drone, you can see it today. Um, so to think about range of use cases, um, whenever they're talking about cultural mapping or mapping places and sites, it's all about the story they can tell. And humans are very visual creatures. So the more you can see, the more quality you can see, the more detail, the more thorough and the better you can tell that story really. Um, so I know that's a huge piece for them. They want to be able to show this is exactly what it looks like um, and show all the beautiful elements of nature in those places but even to talk about the quality it's quite common that we'll be playing around in something like google earth pro and we'll have you having a look at the satellite imagery and they'll go you you can you can see it um, but you can't quite see the exact quality that they're used to seeing it's like not quite as they remember it Um, and then also the recency like think about if you just had a big bush burn or something like that Uh, if you jump on your satellite imagery it's probably not going to be up to date with the effects of that fire you can't see it yet Um, but if you went out for drone you could see it right now and I get to work. So. And the thing is with satellite imagery as well is that there are vendors out there who can give you that daily cadence, but that costs a lot of money. Yes. You know, it costs a lot of money to do that. And I guess it's not really a resource that lots of people have. And lots of cloud and smoke as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we find yeah. the cloud a big thing on the reef, but smoke definitely if you're talking about mapping on country after fires, mm-hmm. a big issue in the satellite data. Yeah, and the, uh, the other part of this, I would imagine, is, Marty, is that, you know, rangers are managing such huge, like, expanses yeah. of, of land, right? Yeah. Um, and, I mean, th- these days, like, drones are a lot more affordable. They've got really high-quality cameras and stuff, you know. Um, I think it's just my background. My natural inclination when I when drones first came around was, holy shit, a mapping tool. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you have people are taking video and photographs and all the rest 
And I was like, no, no, no. This is a mapping thing that you can do yourself. Um, and it is just, yeah, it, it's kind of great being a part of that. I think we're at the really early days of kind of like the geo-nuttier stuff of um, personal mapping, mm. um, where anybody can get a drone for a few hundred bucks, throw it up, and get a really good map. It's about knowing how to how to use it, it's right? Knowing That's how to use it, yeah. Um, yeah, we've, we've had a lot of kind of learnings along the way, you know. Um, yeah, um, for me, it's a, it's a natural fit uh, for how to manage country. It gives you another perspective. Yeah, I think it's really exciting to be able to share with people as well yeah this you know this is a really cool tool for pretty pictures and videos which is how drones are really out in the market through mm. photography and videography but then to actually be able to show people you know what you can use it for information and data capture as well and it's really really easy to do so that's something that i really enjoy working particularly if i'm working with rangers as well as to just go hey I know you've got a drone, but I know that you're just flying it for, you know, just checking out some things manually. What if you could do more? What what would it look like? And and how might we be able to help you do that as well? So that's what I really enjoyed doing. Yeah, well, Karen, you've worked with ranger groups before. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience working with ranger groups and, and drones? Yeah, so I yeah, there's a couple of ranger groups over here in Far North Queensland that I've worked with and and like I said, I really, really enjoy doing that as well because I love being able to demonstrate that things that they can do on country can become just a little bit more valuable with a small tweak. And in that case in this case it is just looking at right, so how do we how do we step up the use of drones from maybe having a look for compliance or, yeah, did we get the burn right to being able to get quantitative information out of that. And I think that unfortunately what we find with a, with a, a lot of people, and it's not just within Indigenous ranger groups, but a lot of people will do a their drone licence, but it doesn't, it doesn't even show that mapping could be a thing. Yeah. You don't even know that that's a thing and you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah, it's so. just like learn how to fly this drone and have, you know, understand the rules and the regulations around that and go do that. And, yeah, you're right. There's there's not a lot of, you know, additional, hey, by the way. Yeah, the <laughs> actual application of, yeah, other than, yeah, photographs and videos. Yeah. So I'm interested in hearing then in terms of like when it comes to caring for country initiatives, and this could be from an Indigenous perspective and a non-Indigenous perspective, um, and maybe, you know, Tim and Marty can talk about some of the work that you've done recently, um, but how, how do you think people can utilise these, these drone mapping skills? How can drone mapping help people do those jobs better? What kind of tasks do you see rangers doing, for instance? Yeah, well, um, I mean, the rangers are right all the time anyway. They're monitoring what happens on country, um, you know, in terms of uh, flora, fauna, habitats and weed growth and stuff like that. So wildlife uh, as well? And stuff, Would wildlife that? and everything. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and I think part of our program with the IMW and another project we're on the PCLMP is about establishing a baseline. So we te- we're teaching how to fly a drone, how to use a drone for mapping, um, showing them how, okay, send up the drone, that once you've now got a baseline map that you can use for, um, you know, if you go out again in a month, three months, six months, fly the exact same flight path, which you can do because you can program in the flight path, um, and then they can compare 
Um, and I mean, another part of, I think, the logical next step will be applying earth observation, machine learning, AI, to automatically kind of assess what's going on. Uh, and I just, it kind of, because I mean, while the drone's flying, they're also what collecting data themselves um, with whatever data collection, fulcrum or something. Um, and it just kind of, you know, you're syncing up the, the two different types of data collection so methodologies. They might be quite siloed at the moment. So yeah. like if a ranger group is collecting, you know, data on fulcrum and they keep that in one place and then they're collecting their drone imagery and that's kept in another place, what you're saying is, is that that can be combined yep. together. Cool. Combined yeah. together. And it gives, uh, again, a different perspective. Um, and it also allows them to fly and map areas where they possibly couldn't get to before. Hmm. Yeah, like I think the biggest thing, definitely that environmental monitoring um, and like, yeah, looking at country health with drones is, is a huge thing for them. And we kind of touched on it before with the scale. Um, you know, it's a small, it's usually a small group of people, these ranger groups, trying to do really big, uh, mm. huge things. So the drone uh, can, you know, really help them do that at the scale that they want, which is usually to look after their whole native tidal area. They've got a drone, they can fly it over, get that. And then, yeah, if we can push it to the next level of... Yeah analyzing that imagery and then counting pixels and this pixel means this and then getting some really useful data out of that without having to manually um, qualify your imagery and stuff like that um, that'll just be huge for yeah. these ranger groups what about yourself karen you've done some mapping up in archer point yeah and i like i i, th I agree with both of you in terms of being able to cover bigger areas than people out on foot and then also combining with the other data sets there as well I think one of the things, I guess, a, a challenge that I want to throw out there, and I'm keen to hear from you, Tim and Marty, what you see happening on the ground as well, is that when we when we look at the way you have, say, a, a ranger job description, it's generally really enticing the for the type of person that loves to be physically on country, right? And I absolutely get that. And it's a great job if you want to be out in your boots and you know, getting your hands and feet dirty and all that. And that fits for the person who captures the drone data. But then I'm really curious how we how we are then able to get some of that data and retain it within the Indigenous communities for themselves, right? So it's not that it, it then gets it's taken off them. So they retain the data. Mm. But then we start to look at upskilling people within communities so that they have the skills to be able to analyze it as well and know that's some of the work that you do within imw so i guess I'd, I'd like to throw that back to you and think like i've got this idea of you know what is a digital ranger someone that could be a ranger but actually they're the computer-based person and maybe that's what they're interested in i don't know what are your thoughts i'm thinking very quickly before they answer that i'm thinking man andrew dowding is going to hear this conversation and be like exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right but go ahead and answer that if you like yeah no i think that's exactly what our programs are trying to do um so we're trying to get indigenous people who are passionate about this kind of data um you know how can they get it how can they use it how can they jump on a computer and visualize it um how are they storing it all of that stuff um so probably a good segue into that Pilbara Cultural Land Management Project. Yeah, because you mentioned PCLMP before, yeah. and I'm mindful that our listeners are not going to know what that acronym no, means. No, I was thinking I should so explain very, what that is. very quickly explain what that is, and then maybe you can use that as an example to, to um, explain to Karen what that is too, yeah. in relation to her question. Yeah, the PCLMP, the Pilbara Cultural Land Management Program, it is 
yeah, it's a program of works over the course of the next three years or so. Um, I think primarily geared towards from our or from Yama's perspective, um, upskilling and kind of building that equity within ranger groups in spatial technology, um, which includes drone mapping. Um, yeah, it's a it's an awesome program, and we are early doors, and we are still trying to map out. Um, yeah, like you say, Karen, you know, there's a bunch of rangers who sign up for the job because they want to be outdoors and maybe not so much inside data processing and stuff. And we are trying to, I guess, find data champions within each ranger group. We have that kind of inclination. You know, we love being outdoors, but also love getting on the tools on the computer, doing the data analysis and taking care of the data for the ranger group and for community um, and retaining that ownership. And I think... Yeah, part of, I think one of the longer term aims as well is enabling them to kind of retain the ownership and I guess monetize um, the data. You know, if they want. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think probably as well, just based on the, the the little bit I know about this, but definitely the information I know from working with Indigenous Mapping Workshop for the last few years, is that um, when it comes to finding those data champions, a lot of the time what we see is that. People um, doing Indigenous mapping workshop don't always have or haven't always had the opportunity to see, okay, this is what an ortho mosaic is, but what does that actually give me? How does that help us do our job? How does that help us communicate a story about country right now or show that we're doing our Caring for Country initiative in the right way? And um, being able to see that finished product and be like, hey, you can actually create this is the first part of that, you know, that education is... Imagine if you could do this and they're like, wow, you know, that's amazing. I, I, I could do that. And it's like, we are going to show you how to do that. Shit, because yeah. I think expecting people to um, go, oh, drone mapping, okay, start the course from module A through to module B, you know, N or M yep. without showing them what, it, what the eventual product is yeah. can lose people early on if they're not used to being in that desktop environment, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, no, we definitely yeah. found that with our training. So we pull up the orphan <laughs> mosaic and everyone will be going, whoa, that's so good. That's exactly what yeah. we want. Um, but then when we're going through, oh, here's, you know, the photo upload and here's, it's now processing that kind of thing. The kind of, the excitement stoops down a bit. So yeah. they definitely like the outputs and seeing that first. It helps. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of thinking about strategically working with people that like to be in that tech space as well and... And again, sort of going back to that job description of a ranger, that if that there, you can find some of the the rangers that may like to do tech, but then what about the people out in the community that never considered themselves a ranger because they don't actually want to be getting their hands and feet dirty mm. all the time? That they think actually, you know, I do care for country. Hey, maybe there's another way that I could be a ranger, mm. but I don't have to do the heavy lifting outside kind of role. Yeah, yeah, I find that a really sort of interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I guess like you say, there's a science for everyone, you know. Um, and I think at, at heart we're all, we're all scientists in some way or other, you know, and it's all about, you know, what's my interest in doing this, you know. Thank yeah. you for reading my bio. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, like I said, I totally fanboyed out. <laughs> so we um, we keep talking about ortho mosaics. We keep talking about photogrammetry and things like that. And I'm just mindful that you know there are lots of different ways that you can process this data, um, and there's lots of different ways to make sense of it and start to p- 
put together that final like beautiful story that you want to tell. So I mentioned it a bit before with the satellite imagery bit, Tim, that you were talking about, you know, you can get it daily. There is clouds, sometimes smoke that interferes with that, like Karen said. But, you know, these things cost money. So what options do people have, let's say, for Indigenous Mapping Workshop, um, that they could use that are maybe low cost but just as effective? Like how could people go about that? Yeah, so when it comes to imagery processing, uh, there's quite a few enterprise solutions out there on the market um, which can also be tailored towards individuals. Um, so some that our viewers might, or listeners uh, might already know of. <laughs> not viewers um, yet, Tim. Yeah, Please, let's not, not get ahead of ourselves. I'm, I'm, barely, I'm barely holding it together with just the podcast, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so drone deploying, I know, is a pretty popular one that's out there. Uh, Pix4D, and there's plenty of others. Um, but yeah, this was this was a real challenge we had. Um, how do we get Indigenous rangers who might not have the money um, to pay for like a, a long running subscription um, with these? Like, what's an alternative for them to use? Um, so, we stumbled across an open source software solution called Open Drone Map or ODM. Uh, as a as a quick summary, it's a collection of software and services um, that you can use to process drone imagery and make models, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, we actually spoke about this uh, solution uh, last week at the Phosphor G conference. And um, yeah, we had lots of really, really excited people listening into our presentation. And I got asked about it afterwards as well, a couple questions. But basically, to give you a quick overview of how it works, you uh, collect your drone imagery. So you've got your camera on your drone, taking your photos. Um, you upload those to this server. It's going to process all those images for you um, using a photogrammetry algorithm and it's going to spit out uh, whatever outputs you kind of wanted from that. So you can specify that. We were usually going for ortho mosaics with the stuff we were going about, and um, quick description of that, it's like a map. Uh, so think about looking down, like a bird's eye view, um, straight down at country, and you've got that kind of stitches together into a big picture. Um, yeah, so that's, that's another option that's out there now. Now, I can't say it's completely free, so the software itself is free, but these things, uh, these image processing uh, beasts like um, drone deploy and stuff like that, uh, it involves a lot of compute power in the back end that's running this algorithm to stitch all these photos together. Um, so even if you use the open source software solution in Open Drone Map, you're either going to need a very beefy computer, um, which could lock you out a little bit, um, lots of RAM required, or you could use, and this is what we did for our rangers, which is we stood up a server for them to do all the processing. So then that how way... Did, how did you do that? Uh, so we use cloud, just because that's usually the quickest way to get something off, off, off the ground rather than going to a data centre. Um, so we've just got a server in the cloud with AWS and that's running Open Drone Map. So it just, it just serves up a website and our, our um, Indigenous rangers can go to this website, upload their photos and get their maps back, um, yeah, on demand whenever they want. So Nice. Very, very cool. Karen, what do you use just out of interest for your um, processing? Yeah, so that's actually a really, really good question. And the answer to that is it depends. So we also have access to Open Drone Map, but also use Pix4D, Agisoft, Correlator, ArcGIS, Drone to Map. It's, it's crazy. The number of different algorithms that are out there is it's really mind boggling. And one of the challenges that I find is that there's there's no real consistency. So I can't say, right, I know that 
web ODM is always going to give me the mm. best results. So yep. I'll go with that because for some data sets, it simply doesn't work. And because I work across such a variety of different types of ecosystems, if I actually find it really, really frustrating that I have to hold the licenses for a number of different packages to make sure yeah. that my outputs are the way I want them to be. And exactly what Tim was saying in terms of this can get really, really expensive for for people that firstly don't have the, the hardware to process data themselves and then don't necessarily have the expertise or the money to finance the software. And that was part of the, the reason why we built our drone mapping platform as well. And so we actually provide the automosaics back for free as well. If people upload their data to our site, GeoNadia, then they get the automosaics back. But our deal with it is that it's open data. So when we, we work with some ranger groups who want to keep that data private for absolutely understandable reasons, then we have a cost that's associated with that. But as long as you're happy for your data to be provided openly to anybody who wants to be able to access and analyze that, yeah, okay. then we have that available for free as well. So, you know, there are options out there for people to be able to get access to processing and the products that they need as well without necessarily paying lots of money. We just have a different different transaction that's not financial. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. That's really cool. It is really cool. Actually leads me nicely into asking about Geonadia and the ebook that you recently um, released and and finally, Marty, you can start asking questions about this too. But Karen, can you please, um, you know, just give us an overview? Because I know it's a compilation of drone mapping and mission planning tips. Um, can you give us our listeners just a bit of a brief overview of the ebook and how it could help? Yeah, for sure. The ebook is a compilation of my mistakes. <laughs> I love and that. <laughs> and I swear to God, I wish we had had it three months ago. Because <laughs> I think we made a, like I think we made a lot of the same mistakes. Yeah, over the past eight years that I've been flying, I've, you know, I have really, really learned by trial and error. And I guess, you know, some of that is is because I, I didn't have people around me that had expertise or I didn't have the money to pay for it or whatever the case may be. And so, yeah, I, I wrote the ebook to stop other people making the same mistakes because I firmly believe that we've got so many challenges out there in the world and in particular in the environment that I'm interested in that if everybody has to start from scratch, we'll never ever sort out problems that we have. So we should absolutely build on the shoulders of the mistakes that other people have made. So this is what the ebook is. It's, it's all about just really cutting down to the basic things that you don't learn when you do your, your drone pilot license, the repo that people might be aware of which takes you through a range of other things, but it doesn't teach you about drone mapping. So these are the handy hints, tips and tricks, whatever you might like to call them, that will hopefully get you operational in terms of capturing data. And volume two coming out very, very soon is about processing the data. So what we've just talked about in terms of being able to stitch your data together to an auto mosaic, Volume 2 is going to go through all different software packages and compare and contrast those as well. Quick plug for that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Awesome. I, I think we have an audience that's going to be very interested in that. Um, 
I know this because I've got two colleagues who are sitting here very interested in that. Oh. <laughs> so, no, that's a really cool, Karen. Um, I'm really excited to see, now that you guys have all been introduced, how you could be collaborating more together. Um, so it all sounds like you're all doing the same sorts of things and you've got the same ideas and missions. So I'm really excited to see how that, that could develop. Um, but we, we don't have much more time left on the podcast. I knew this was going to be a cracker. I tell you what, we have gone for 41 minutes and usually these podcasts go from 25 to 30 minutes. So <laughs> I am going to have to wrap it up. Um, but before I do, I would really love to hear about some recommendations. We might have some people listening to the podcast right now who have maybe wanted to look at drone mapping. Maybe they've dabbled in it before. Maybe they're thinking, oh, can I really do that? You know, um, maybe... We'll start with you, Marty, but any tips or tricks people should be thinking about if they want to get started with drone mapping? Yeah, I guess start off with the drone, the type of drone. Um, I think there are a couple of, I mean, usually we'll just go for DJI because it's the most well-known brand. Um, and most of the DJIs can capture good imagery that can be used for orthomosaics. I think apart from, I think the Mavic 2 or something. Um, Except for their latest release. Mavic oh, really? 3, oh, the Mavic not 3? Does no, it and the Mavic 2 is off the shelf now, so... I don't think um, DJ are going to sponsor this podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe not, the way we're going to I'm only joking, then we don't have sponsors. <laughs> but if anyone wants to, please reach out. No. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, picking a good drone, one that can do the mapping. And I think, uh, yeah, one of the... Yeah, one of the biggest pitfalls that we noticed a few times was a kind of lack of preparation when you go out. Um, not having enough batteries, not checking the SD card, making sure the propellers are all 100%, making sure that you know where you're going to go, the terrain, how to get in there, and having a... Well, I mean, we're trying to push the proper flight plan, um, and there are some apps that are available on Apple, some that are available on Android, and some that aren't available on either one. Um, so it was a bit of trial and error to find out which ones worked, and depending on the device the Rangers might have, um, so if they have Apple, I usually recommended there's um, Map Pilot Pro, which is a pretty good one for, um, it's a free app for, so far for programming in flight paths, but it's not available on Android. But I think uh, DJI have recently released one called DJI Pilot, which you can program in a flight path. Um, so yeah, so that's part of it is basically making sure that you plan out your flight path before you go out, you know, while you're still on Wi-Fi or have connection or whatever because you're going out remotely, you might not be able to program in anything at all. Okay, cool. So, yeah, preparation. Yeah, awesome. We can include some links in the show notes. Tim, yeah. what about, like, you know, can anyone fly a drone? Is What do you recommend? You know, do you have to, you know, pilot license? If you want to get started, any courses that IMW are planning or thinking about doing that we should know about? Yeah, so in terms of getting certified, um, there is a free online CASA course that you can take, um, which will let you fly, I believe it's commercially, not... Not excluded. Not, not, not commercially. Not excluded, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so for like recreational purposes and I think it's up to a certain weight as well. Um, but otherwise, if you want the full kind of unrestricted um, access to flying your drones, you need to go take that Reaple course, which is paid. Um, Marty's probably got more details on that, um, holding one himself and being a drone pilot. Um, That's yeah, but uh, in, in terms of the stuff that, that we can do as well, uh, that we can do for you, I suppose, in terms of, um, in terms of like drone training, that kind of thing. Uh, so we do have a program for the Indigenous Mapping Workshop. It's currently an in-person course. Um, so Marty and I have done up the slides um, and that kind of thing, and we can present it as a class, but we're really hoping to adapt it to our 
online learning management system yep. and uh, another plug, uh, <laughs> IMW On Demand. <laughs> um, f- yeah, so we're, we're hoping that'll be something we can realise probably next year. Um, we'll have an online course available for that. Um, so that way, you know, we're not locked into your location and stuff like that in the, in the COVID world. You know, yeah. I think that's pretty important. So, Well, hopefully we'll have open borders soon and we won't be trapped in WA much longer. And if, you know, there are Indigenous ranger groups that want to reach out to the team, still, you know, if you want to have an online tra- um, an online or in-person training, just get in touch um, because hopefully at some stage our team can travel to you. Um, and we have a network of people all around Australia who can help us facilitate that training as well um, and, and get to you so that we can we can provide that training. Karen, um, anything you'd like to mention on, on this topic regarding resources? It could be, you know, some she maps, drone mapping course or anything with Geo Nadia? Yeah, definitely. So in schools, we, we work with SheMaps. So you can just go to SheMaps.com if you've got any kind of schooly type stuff that you're interested in. With as soon as as soon as we go outdoors, then we go to Geonadir. So Geonadir is G-E-O-N-A-D-I-R. And so geonadir.com, we've got heaps of resources for people to get get started with drone mapping. We also have a course that we run either face-to-face or online. Face-to-face is so much better, mm. obviously. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you know, more than happy for people to do the online course, but at any stage, if we can, if we either get there to you or send someone else, you know, to do the practical components, always so much better. There's so many tips and tricks that you just learn by having someone by your side as well. But there is there is the online option. Certainly, I found the the ranger groups that we've worked with. It's just a million times better if we go on country as yeah. well. So. Actually, yeah. Taryn, I do have a question if we have time. Yeah, we have time. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to get a lot of our ranger groups certified with CASA, um, you know, the REPL or the REOC. Um, but we're having a really hard time trying to find a CASA certified course for REPL or REOC that has a focus on land and country management. Yeah. No, there's nothing out there, right? Okay, you haven't found anything either? No, not okay. at all. And I, like, it, it, it's one of the challenges that I think there is. So with the with the Ripple or the remote pilot license, as long as you're flying under two kilos, you don't need it. But no. I know that people like the, the certified course to do that. And unfortunately, we found that a lot of the people that we work with, when we ask them what their what their confidence is in flying at the end of doing their drone pilot license, the average answer that we get is five out of 10. Yeah. Now, I think it's, that's just, it's not acceptable when you think about a five day long course that you can pay anywhere between one and $3,000 to do that doesn't give you the operational skill set to work on country. And I'm really so far against that. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, I, I could talk for days on that topic in all honesty. Um, it's it's really, really important that we look at, you know, what are the operational skills required and and how that's taught in a culturally appropriate mm. manner as well. And as far as I'm concerned, the current official training doesn't cut it. No. Mm. Okay. Yeah, can we do a part two of the podcast? Yeah, maybe. I think we might have to make that a part two. Um, but I'm obviously going to include links in the show notes to all of the resources that all of our wonderful speakers have given us just now, including the ebook, Karen. 
Um, so if you head to ngis.com.au, under newsroom you'll see a link to podcasts, which will take you to our Captivate FM page. In there you'll find all of the links um, to all the resources that we've been chatting about. But we do um, need to wrap it up there, guys. And, hey, Karen, thank you so much. I've just been admiring that, you know, while you have been off mute and chatting and hear that, you know, birds in the background and it just sounds so amazing where you are. And we really appreciate you always just putting your hand up and making an effort to come here and, and be here with us and have these chats because we really value that. So thank you. Anytime. I really enjoy the chats too. And I'm open to any conversations around this sort of stuff any day as well. Yeah, awesome. We'll definitely touch base after this. Awesome. And yeah. thank you so much, Tim and Marty. First podcast, I think you've done pretty good. Oh, cheers. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. No worries. Happy we'll definitely here. have you back. Now, if you love what you listen to here on Location Matters and you want to learn more about the mapping world and what's possible, don't forget you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.